Welcome to the Remarkable Relationship Show with Mercy Russell, where we find the wonder in your story. I will be your host for the next hour. I have over 35 years of experience applying the science of relationship systems to my practice of psychotherapy and leadership consulting. My intuitive skills allow me to bring clarity and vision to your challenges. I hope you will be surprised in the next hour. Good morning. This is Mercy Russell with the Remarkable Relationship Show. My goal is to bring a fresh perspective to you on all things related to how humans develop their individual brilliance while navigating the excitement, stickiness, and resistance in their relationships. In my 40 years of working as a psychotherapist and consultant, I have been continually amazed at the ways in which people overcome challenges. I hope to share my experience and insight so you can find the magic in your relationships. So today I'm going to be um, showing the second part of my interview with Lori McCants, a Life in the Bloomsburg Theater Ensemble, Be Open to Surprise, part two. So last week, um, we opened with the, sh with the story of the beginning of her lifelong career. Lori began by following a renowned acting coach, Alvina Krauss, to her retirement home in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, town of 10,000, with her classmates, from Northwestern's MFA in acting program. Lori and I are connected because we both attended a small college in Minnesota, Carleton College, and are in the same graduating class. So, so Lori and her graduate student friends stayed in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania with Alvina Krauss and created an ensemble theater from which Lori recently retired as an emeritus member. This was not their plan originally, but when they arrived in the basement of this very famous acting coach who was in retirement, she told them, she said to them, so you want to, you want to act in the theater? And they said, yes. And she said, too bad, there is no theater because there was no active theater in this town. So they took it upon themselves to start a theater ensemble. And that was over 40 years ago. And it's very active. And today we're going to hear the second part of the story of how that community theater um, expanded beyond the community of, of, Bloomberg, of Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. So this is a story of the magical mi mix of vision and grit shared in the ensemble. There were local, cultural, and financial benefactors, and there was fertile soil in the welcoming community. The many factors came together to make this a, su a success. And what we're going to hear today is how the innate passions and talents of the ensemble opened doors to profound exchanges with international and native cultures. So now I'm going to share my screen. It's going to, you know, we're going to do our best with this so that we can continue with the second part of my interview with Lori. Okay. This is, I do want to just uh, highlight this and I'm going to try to put it in the beginning again. But when we first <laughs> spoke about this interview, I said, well, what do you want to talk about, Lori? What is it you really want to say? And what you said was, I want to talk to young people to tell them to be open to surprise. Right. And that this has really been, in your view, a theme of what your experience has been with this yeah. lifelong project. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that I learned, especially in the early years of the theater company, and it's, it's still working now, I, I did learn from my ancestors. I did read about, um, for example, the Moscow Art Theater that um, um, was started by Stanislavski and did the first performances of the plays by Chekhov. 
the importance of having a che uh, a check off in your midst to play. Right. <laughs> uh, you know. uh -huh. Also, they, you know, I mean, you know, Stanislavski was a, a sort of mm, male chauvinist <laughs> uh -huh. and macho kind of guy, but you know, they they did value the the the, the work of ensemble as as uh, leading toward better theater. Um, I did study the, the, the theaters of the 1930s here in the United States, the theaters that came out of the work projects administration, the WPA, mm -hmm. um, the government, government sponsored, government fund, funded artistic community-based work that happened all over the United States. Uh, I did study the, the group theater, a group that was formed in New York City in uh, in the 1930s. I did study Shakespeare's company. It was a company. Mm -hmm. It was an ensemble. I studied Moliere's company. That was a company. They were an ensemble. Um, of course, they had great playwrights <laughs> <laughs> at their at their helm, you know. But they were they were ensembles. They were companies. Mm -hmm. um, so I did learn from the ancestors. But also, uh, what I mean by surprise is that your colleagues, your fellow artists, every day, they will surprise you. It's really, it's like mm -hmm. any relationship. It's like any relationship. If you put them in a box, if you decide, oh, you're always like this. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is who you are. Um, if you, if you don't allow yourself to be open to the fact that any moment they might surprise you with something unexpected, something wonderful, that's where, that's where the juice, juice happens. That's mm -hmm. where the, you know, and giving, giving people opportunities, you know, we vote on on who our directors are. Mm -hmm. there, you know, over over the years, there have been many young artists who's who've never really directed before, but they write their proposals. We read them, and we say yes. Mm -hmm. Going to okay. take a chance. Right. Going to take a chance, and that's that's how people grow. You know. Mm -hmm. Well, that vignette that you you just told us to me was a wonderful story about that because you know, you so nicely describe the experience of not even knowing that you were the one who was going to be the spokesperson. <laughs> and then, you know, I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, wow, she really did her research. You know, she really yeah. analyzed the, the, you know, she thought, what's this man going to care about the economics? I mean, you know, it was, it turned out he surprised you, right? Right, exactly. Uh, but that's not to say it wasn't important what you said, because what he could, if I were him, I would say they, they, they are thinking in a very practical way about mm -hmm. their project. This is not, mm -hmm. they're not just fly by night. And he did like, you know, what you did. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that that's, it's, I have to say, just I'm a, a therapist, so I've been listening to people for uh, 35 years. And I can't say I've had a conversation in which I didn't have that experience you just described of being surprised uh -huh. and what was there. And often, you know, and, and because I can see, you know, because it comes out, I think it's also sometimes a gift to be able to sit and reflect that back, just uh -huh. the way that you give an opportunity for a young person to do something they haven't done before. Yeah. Now, one thing you shared, and these will be, we'll have some show notes and uh, that'll be available, I think, with uh -huh. this interview, which will include this interview that you've done, but it's, it was done by, um, what was it, American Theater? Is the who is the uh, the journal? Um, and I noticed there were questions there about theater that I couldn't have even asked because uh -huh. I don't diagnose, you know, I just don't really know. But I wonder if you'd just like to talk a little bit about the, you, you've spoken generally about, um, you know, the range of plays that you, uh -huh. that you put on, that you performed, classic, 
experimental plays that you've written yourself. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the actual creative process and the range that yeah you know, that you think was really important to the success of the ensemble. Yeah, 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 yeah. We do a wide range of plays, and it's partly because um, we are the only professional theater company within about an hour radius. Um, uh, and it's partly because of the eclecticism of the ensemble. We all have different tastes, different things that 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 juice us up, um, mm -hmm. and um, and it's partly also because uh, we have. Um, how am I going to put this? Um, well, I th I think it does come with I I think it does come from the wide ranging taste of the ensemble. Uh, Oh, okay. So somebody's taking a tour through the the theater. Uh -huh. um, I love that we get to see that we're in the theater. Actually, yeah, we're in the theater. We're yeah. underneath the seats. Underneath and then the, the ensembles cave. Yeah. I love that. So yeah. uh, we always want to make sure that we have um, at least two plays in the season that will have family appeal, um, because we want families to come. We want you know multi generational mm -hmm. audiences. And of course, that has resulted in in many, many, many young people ended up ending up taking theater classes with us, and in, ending up being in our shows with us. Um, it also resulted in a lot of parents throwing their money our way <laughs> because mm -hmm. because they love what we have provided for their young people. Um, Bloomsburg Theater Ensemble is a place for for kind of the. The young people in our town who are a little bit weird, a little bit off the, you know, off the beaten path, a little bit maybe rebellious or or, or um, um, uh, well, you know, non-conforming. Mm -hmm. uh, our theater has been a home for those kids over the years. Mm -hmm. Over the years. Um, so we always we always want to do something around the holiday time that that uh, that has appeal to to families, and yes, we do Christmas Carol. However, we've always done our own adaptations. We don't do it every year. We wait a couple of years and then do it bring it bring it back again. But the adaptations have varied wildly from director to director to director within our ensemble. So we have presented extremely different versions of Christmas. Can you just give us an example of the of the, well, uh, the, the differences? Um, you can imagine, but I'd like yeah, to um, some, some have been really bare bones in terms of uh, production values, like bare stage almost, mm. uh, where really uh, the words of Dickens, which are glorious. Mm -hmm. Those words ring out as being the primary element. Other productions have had huge puppets mm -hmm. and <laughs> you know and 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 lots of music. You know um, they've really varied wildly, um, and that has kept the story, which is beautiful, alive for us. I think theaters run. Um, uh, they run into danger if they keep doing the same Christmas Carol over and over again. With it does have it does have you know that sort of ritualistic and mm -hmm. and holiday appeal, the things that we do like to do again and again. But your your actors and your audience can get kind of numb. Mm -hmm. They're really really significant and deep meaning of that story. The story has to remain vital. Mm -hmm. um, it can't just be a moneymaker for your theater. Right. You, have to, you have to go to the place that Dickens takes you with that story. Um, so that's an example of something that we do over the years, but we do our own thing with it. And right. it many things with it we've yeah. done we do a lot of Shakespeare and again that varies wildly the styles and the way 
the way that we've done that. Um, we've done, we've premiered a lot of plays, newish plays, plays, plays that um, just finished a Broadway run or a regional theater run. Um, and the plays that I'm, I'm most proud of are the plays that we have made about the place where we live. Yes. Yes. And yeah. So, Those are the yeah. most meaningful to me. Right. So this, so this takes me to two other places I want to talk about. One is, uh, I think one thing that stood out to me is that the care that, that you had members of your ensemble who are particularly, I mean, talented in particular ways that uh -huh. open doors for uh -huh. you and the theater. And this also included your member who is a mine. Oh, right. Yeah. So, and I'd like you to talk about what that led you to, and then oh, okay. the rich relationship your theater has had globally as a result yes. of it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, what year would this have been? Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm looking at I'm looking at our schedule or a place to remind myself of what year this would have been that he would have been down. Well, anyway, um, it was it was sometime in. Gosh. When did we take? Well, anyway, it was sometime in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, one of our ensemble members had trained as a, as a as a mime at Northwestern. Northwestern had a magnificent mime company the time in the time years that we mm -hmm. were there. Um, uh, the professor who who led that company had been trained in in Paris, um, and so yeah, mimes get a bad rap, but but the skill is really phenomenal. And um, this this actor was particularly skilled, and he he was performing as a solo performer, as a solo mime, for a festival at the Smithsonian down in DC, DC, an outdoor festival. And a woman from the State Department um, was in the audience, the U.S. State Department, and she came up to him afterwards and she said, "Love your show. We're looking for a theater company." Uh, to take on a tour to sub-Saharan Africa. Do you know of one? <laughs> he said, well, yeah, I got one here right in my back pocket. <laughs> so she came to see what we were doing here in, in Bloomsburg. And um, made this thing happen. She loved what we were doing here. We, we, we took a tour of... Zambia, Zimbabwe, Botswana, Namibia, and uh, we couldn't perform in South Africa because the performance ban was still on. It was still during the apartheid. Mm -hmm. uh, but we did we did drive through South Africa, um, uh, Kenya. We performed in Kenya. Anyway, um, we took a, a new American play called The Voice of the Prairie, which was a, is a beautiful play. It's about the early days of radio in, in the United States when um, people would set up like temporary radio stations connected with hardware stores out on the plains, out wow. in the Midwest, and they would invite local talent to come up and perform um, on the radio and this particular story is about a farmer who actually ends up being an, an amazing storyteller, telling stories about being a hobo riding the rails when he was mm -hmm. a young person. Um, beautiful story, uh, beautiful stories. And also Rand Whipple, our mime, performed mm -hmm. his show. So we, there was no language barrier, of course, with his show. Uh -huh. And um, and all the all of the all of the um, all of the countries that we performed in were Anglophone. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, our, our audience is also mm -hmm. spoke English, understood English, in addition to their beautiful languages. Um, 
it was through this that we met performers in all the places that we that we went to. And uh, hi, hi, I'm I'm doing an interview. Wow. <laughs> Some of my fellow on some. Will not interrupt. That's all right. <laughs> Just an additive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what was I saying? Oh yeah, we met. We met. Of course, we met storytellers, dancers, performers of all kinds in all of our traveling mm-hmm. through through Africa. We, I wrote another grant, <laughs> and uh, we were able to em- employ several of them to come to Bloomsburg. Wonderful. And create a piece uh-huh. with us called Under African Skies, 45-minute piece. They brought their stories. We brought our schools. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we traveled in a van to all of these schools in rural Pennsylvania. It was an experience for these African performers that was an experience of a lifetime, of course, for us as well. And for our school children. You know, most of these schools are in tiny, tiny little places, um, all, all, almost all completely white, mm-hmm. pretty, pretty much poverty stricken. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there are, a, there are schools in Hazleton, schools in Williamsport that have, have a more diverse population. But still, you know, mostly these were these were mm-hmm. poor white kids, descendants of farmers and miners <laughs> mm-hmm. that we were performing for. And uh, they saw they saw us white American actors performing alongside black African actors, and it was a beautiful experience for them and for us. We did the same thing a few years later. Um, I had I had created a, a, a music theater piece with this incredible singer, composer, dancer. Uh, the piece was about the ancient library of Alexandria in mm-hmm. Alexandria, Egypt. We actually got to perform that at the new library in Alexandria, Egypt. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was amazing. Through that, I met Egyptian theater artists. And once again, we created a program, found the funding so that these Egyptian performers could come and live in a small town in rural Pennsylvania uh-huh. and perform their stories alongside us, completely bilingual at that point. It was both Arabic, Egyptian mm-hmm. Arabic, and, and English, the stories that we told in that iteration of our theater in the classroom project so surprising i mean (laughs) would i have thought when i decided to put down roots in this town of twelve thousand in rural pennsylvania that i would end up you know performing in sub-saharan africa yeah taking Egypt. egypt you know no no and you um was it through egypt that you got involved with shadow puppetry um, I've always been interested in puppetry, yeah, but yes, uh-huh. it was the, that uh, we worked with shadow puppeteers, uh-huh. puppeteers. Uh, shadow uh-huh. puppeteers and hand puppeteers. They, mm-hmm. These were young, young people who were um, almost single-handedly reviving an ancient street, street theater form in Egypt, mm-hmm. both shadow puppetry and hand puppetry. They went out and found the two last guys, old guys performing shadow puppetry and hand puppetry. They found these old guys and they said, we want to learn from you. Um, and I learned from them. <laughs> I just really hope we have young people listening to this just to be inspired <laughs> by really what's possible if you go and you search. Um, but you also then worked in different parts of the United States. You know, I think in your bio, you talk about working in Juneau, Alaska. Yeah, um, because I had done this this work with the Egyptians, which involved a lot of negotiation, 
on a lot of levels. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of mistrust of the United States, particularly among people of Arab nations at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, There there were a lot of cultural um, mores that I had to to work through with my my Egyptian male co-director. It's a very, Egypt is a very um, hierarchical uh, dog-eat-dog, male-centered society. It was then, and probably still is now. Um, My my colleague, Nabil, his name is Nabil Bakat, he and I had to work out a way of working together that he felt did not um, sublimate his dignity Mm -hmm. in front of his fellow uh, Egyptians. We ended up with a, a, a fantastic working relationship, but that was not without difficulty. We learned to work through our differences Mm -hmm. and, um, we presented at a national theater conference a whole program about how we did that, why we did that, how it worked out. Um, so that there were theater people from all over the nation who saw this, who heard about, who heard our story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was because of that that um, the artistic director at Juno, Perseverance Theater in Juno, decided to approach me to direct a play, mm-hmm. a new play there that they were creating about local local history. It was about the, it was about the conflict between the uh, Russians and the Klinkets. The Klinkets are the uh, native tribe that <clears throat> live in that area. Uh, the play was about historical events and it was trilingual. It was in Mm-hmm. Russian, Klinkit, and English. English sort of being the hinge language. And he knew he needed somebody who could who could take a careful dance amongst really difficult cultural tripwires, mm-hmm. which were many. Um, I realized pretty soon after I got there that I had been brought in as a neutral party because mm-hmm. there was there was a lot of of historical um ingrained and present um uh what's the word i'm looking for um wariness mm-hmm. about whites working with clinkets clinkets working with whites um, are they going to tell our story right? Mm-hmm. Who gets to tell the story? Um, luckily, there was a whole contingent of Clinket performers mm-hmm. in in the piece. Um, they all ended up being incredibly useful and helpful in the whole process. Also, there was an elder who had never even been to a play before, but he was a Clinket elder. Um, uh, and he was, he had been offered the opportunity to play the part of his great, great, great grandfather in this historical mm-hmm. story. And it was really important to the Clinket community that he decided to take this job on. Um, and because he'd never seen a play before and because he couldn't drive, I became his sort of right-hand companion. Um, I drove him back and forth from rehearsal to, uh, to, to his, his housing, um, which ended up being an incredibly lucky thing because in Clinkett culture, it is considered extremely rude to look somebody straight in the eyes Right. It's very rude, which uh-huh. is which is 
hard for us growing up in our culture because we think of this as being like honest, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they think of this as being incredibly rude. Intrusive, so, yeah. Intrusive. So, you know, being the person who was driving and having read, Wilson, Ray Wilson was his name, mm -hmm. sitting beside me on these long drives back and forth, he could open up and talk to me in a way that was profound. Mm -hmm. In a way that was profound. I learned enough Clinkett to be able to communicate barely, you know, enough to be polite. Mm -hmm. um, I learned a lot about the culture. And I learned, again, to, to be open to surprise and not mm -hmm. to pre-plan. It was this, the next to the last dress rehearsal. And um, there, there was a chorus of actors, several Clinkett members in this chorus. There was a Clinkett woman um, sitting over a fire, singing what is called a cry song. And what she was singing about and why she was singing cry song was because they were being forced to leave their land. It's the old awful story. They were being forced to leave their land. And, um, Next to the final dress rehearsal, we're at that moment of the play. Ray comes up beside me. I'm standing in the theater mm -hmm. in the seats. You know, Ray comes up beside me and he says, they need, they need, they need staffs. And I said, what, what? They need staffs. She's singing a cry song. They need staffs. I said, Okay. Tell me, what, what is that? What does that mean? Well, they have to go out into the woods. They have to find the reeds, the special reeds that are the staffs. Mm -hmm. They have to cut down the staffs themselves. They have to um, uh, make sure the staffs are the right length and sturdy enough. And I said, okay, can we get that done by tomorrow? And he said, yes. So by the next rehearsal, the chorus all had these long, thin, beautiful reed staffs. And Ray showed them how to use them, which was you plant them on the floor or the ground, the floor of the stage, and sort of swirl them like this. And I said, I said, Ray, what are they doing? And he said, they're stirring the ashes of their ancestors. And if, if we had not had those long drives with Ray sitting mm -hmm. beside me, if that trust had not happened, that moment wouldn't have happened. And it would have been wrong. Right. And we would have been judged by the many Clinkett audience mm -hmm. members who came to that opening night to have not paid I, attention. Not done it properly. Not done it properly. And then... I, I'm by blowing. doing it properly, it took the dramatic oh my God. to a completely different level. Completely. And and I mean it was it was profound. It was profound. And the the curtain call, um they called me down and I, you know, gave me flowers, which, you know, that that's traditional in theater, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then Ray was who was in full regalia. Um, as the clan mm -hmm. chief in full regalia, step forward and then something happened in the room, in the theater. And I realized, oh, this is a council meeting. He's calling a council meeting. And he adopted me. And he gave me the name Kachkun, which is his auntie's name. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I said, Ray, why, why that name? And he said, well, because like you, she was a woman who knew her mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that is something that I, I hold dear to my heart, you know. Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> oh, so many. It's, so it's a relationship. It's a relationship that was Absolutely. forged through mistakes, mm -hmm. mistakes. Uh, corrected, mistakes forgiven, 
um, trust established. Uh, the audience at, at the end of the play, uh, the Klingets were stomping their feet and raising mm. their hands like this, which means you, you are raising our people up. Mm -hmm. oh, it was glorious. Really wonderful. And then, the, you know, just the cir circumstances that supported all of that, right? As you yes. said, you know, yeah. that, that seem, um, what's the word? Uh, I, I'm missing the word right now, but just... Um, they seem to kind of come out of nowhere. They're kind of random. Yeah. 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 As a therapist early on, when I, I discovered that, that experience of eye contact, I started working particularly with adolescents and then with other oh, yeah. type of people I could tell right away who were shut down by eye contact mm -hmm. and start to walk with them. Right. Mm -hmm. And right. they could just open up. So it, it's right. just such a profound, um, experience to have when you when that opens up yeah um Lori, i want to i just want to have you talk a little bit about your solo shows you've done quite a few and you're still and you're working on one now i wonder if you could tell us a little bit well, about that. i have one primary solo show that that i developed over years and and was able to perform it over a period of years um called uh, Industrious Angels, which is a quote from an Emily Dickinson poem. Mm -hmm. um, I, I call it, uh, um, what do I call it? A memory play, a shadow puppet memory play with music that evokes the ghosts that evokes mother-daughter bloodlines and the ghost of Emily Dickinson. Um, my mother read me Emily Dickinson poetry when I was little. I had the great experience of having Wayne Carver at Carleton be my teacher of Emily Dickinson, and he was brilliant, brilliant and ex explicating her often really, really confounding poems. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, the fact is that I was actually reading an Emily Dickinson poem to my mother at the moment of her death. And it was all of that weaving together and the fact that my mother was also a writer, but considered herself a failed writer because her not much of her writing had been published in her lifetime. Now, Emily Dickinson's poems were not published in her lifetime. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, she did try a couple of times and then she sort of gave up on that. I mean, these poems were so weird, wonderfully weird. Um, but that didn't stop her. And she never thought of herself as a failure. She knew she was good. She just gave them away in doors, you know, and, and, you know, later on her, her niece found them and they, eventually they came to light, you know, now we revere her as this great, great writer. But my mother's, most of her writing had not been published. There was one story that had been published when she was the editor of a literary magazine out of the University of Tulsa. And she always poo-pooed that because she said, well, I, I was the editor. I was the one that allowed it to be published. You know, mm -hmm. it's a really great story. It's a fabulous story. Um, and so in my piece, not only do I evoke Emily Dickinson, primarily as a shadow puppet, and I do perform mm -hmm. some of her poetry, um, but uh, I also it also leads up to my pulling my mother's story out of a drawer and sharing it with the audience. Mm -hmm. And audiences just love this story. My mother was long gone by the time I was performing this piece, so I always thought, "Mama, I, uh -huh. I, 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 I want you to know <laughs> people like this story a lot. They love your story. Mm -hmm. So there's that one. Um, and I, that one I've, I've put away. I've, I've decided it's, I've done that one. Mm -hmm. I've performed it in several places and, uh, 
and it's it needs to be put away now. Well, and you you mentioned that you are working on a on another solo show. Yeah, I just working... wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, it's it's going to be it's going to be a show that that weaves together uh, my own personal history being a woman named Laurie growing up in Oklahoma. Um, if you're familiar with the musical Oklahoma, you know that the lead character is named Laurie. Um, and throughout my life, I've had a lot of people over the years, like even in sub-Saharan Africa, <laughs> like, oh, Oklahoma, and your name's Laurie. Don't you love that musical? And I actually really hate that musical. <laughs> I really hate that musical. Mm. It's very white supremacist. It's very misogynist. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, I've always hated it, but um, my roots are definitely Oki. My my grandfather on my father's side moved from uh, Tennessee to what was Indian Territory um, back in the 1880s, and he bought 40 acres each from two Black women who had been formerly enslaved by the Chickasaws. The Chickasaws had been pushed from eastern, southern United States, Florida, Georgia, through Alabama, into, into Indian Territory. Um, the Chickasaws sided with the Confederates, with the Confederacy, partly because they thought they were going to be the, that, the winning side, <laughs> mm-hmm. and partly because the Chickasaws were slave owners. Um, they brought their slaves with them on all of these, this enforced. The Trail uh, of Tears. The Trail of Tears yeah. was what the Cherokees called it. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. That's yeah. Right, right. But that emigration um, that was forced. That, yeah. yeah, the forced, forced removal, the Indian removal. Yeah, anyway, um, that is part of my family history. I actually have the deeds. I have the deeds. Um, and that is the land that my father grew up on. It is, it is the land that my brother and my cousins and I no longer own the land itself, but we own the mineral rights, what is below. Mm. And that is playing very largely right now yes. in terms of the fracking for natural gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have that personal history and my I can draw upon my Aunt Hildred's memoirs, which are fantastic. She was my father's older stepsister. She also grew up on this farm in southern Oklahoma. However, she went to college, uh, and then uh, she remained a farmer her whole life, but she also became, she went to college and then to law school. She became the first female district attorney in all of Oklahoma, and she was very funny and very fierce, and her memoirs are quite juicy. Uh, they're quite good. Um, so I'll be pulling them, I'll be pulling from those memoirs, I'll be telling my personal story, and also telling the horrific story of Oklahoma as mm-hmm. a state, <laughs> which, mm-hmm. which uh, a lot of that is, is coming out in the open now. Growing up in Tulsa, nobody ever talked about the 1921 race massacre. It was only about 20 years ago that I first started hearing about it, even mm-hmm. e- even, you know, uh, amongst the educated people in my parents' generation. It was completely denied that it happened. When it first started coming out, um, it was called the race riot, which was a misnomer in white folks' minds that immediately brings to mind uh, b- blacks rioting. It was not. It was not blacks rioting. It was white. It was a mo- a white mob attacking black Tulsa mm-hmm. and eliminating it, burning it to the ground. Um, and I'm I'm. It's good. It's good that the story is out now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's a it's a difficult story to admit that it that that is part of your of your state history, of your family history. Mm-hmm. Your heritage. 
heritage. That's that's in your heritage. Yeah. Um, you know, from my point of view, there's several themes in your story that I just am going to mention before I, you know, have you speak to the future. <laughs> um, uh, which is that I think just this, the importance of the, you know, your experience with it in community, in Blue, uh -huh. as we've talked, as you've talked quite a bit about. And, um, and in my, what's really fascinating to me is that you, you know, grew up in this, you know, fairly rich family in Oklahoma, um, went to Minnesota, landed in Pennsylvania, and yet all along the way, you kept your connection to your roots in Oklahoma, uh -huh. and to your family. And uh -huh. to me is really part of the recipe of, you know, what I would call really the, it's sort of fertile soil for a productive life is being able to sort of, you know, to, to, you know, become, uh, to follow your own individual path, but at the same time, stay connected to uh -huh. your family and to your roots. Uh -huh. And I think this, you know, sort of the last, this particular project in front of you to uh -huh. not only tells the story of that past, but tells the story of how you've stayed in contact and stayed yeah. active, you know, with, 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 your family and with this other really important community in your life. Right. right. Yeah. So Lori, I, I, I would like to close here by having, by giving you the opportunity to talk about, to sort of give advice to aspiring theater artists, I guess is how we would say it. Um, from your perspective, what, what would you like, what message would you like to, to pass along? If we're going to do it in 25 words or less. No, not 25. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Obviously, there's a lot to say, but. Well, um, find your people. Um, know that they will disappoint you at times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let that be okay. Work through whatever stumbling blocks you encounter. And, you know, theaters are is a collaborative art form. Um, it is, it depends upon uh, people working together and learning how to do that takes time, it takes patience, it takes, um, be, as I say, being open to surprise um, and uh, believing, believing in the best Believing that believing that your fellow artists are capable of genius, mm -hmm. capable of of beauty, of surprise, um, being open to all of that. Um, I have I have found being a part of a community to be incredibly rewarding. You know, you do a play. It's a live it's a live art form. It, it's ephemeral. It happens mm -hmm. uh, in real time, and then it's gone. But because I've stayed in the same place um, and performed in the same place for many people who have also stayed in the same place, mm -hmm. and with many people who also stayed in this place, there have been many moments like. People who stop you in the in the grocery store saying, "Oh my God, oh my God!" When you did that, that was incredible. And sometimes it's something that happened the night before, and sometimes it's they're remembering something that happened ten years ago. Mm -hmm. You know that what you have created has meant something to someone. That's significant. It can keep you going. So I, I just, I can just picture, I love that, the, um, that moment that you described as you were, um, you know, I think sort of, you know, leaving Carlton and embarking on a 
career, not really knowing where it was going to take you, right? Mm -hmm. That it was going to take you to develop a theater. You didn't know, I mean, if it, you know, was acting really where you were going, you know? And so I love the, the whole experience of, as you say, to be open to surprise is that even as you started out, you might have had some sort of stock notion of where this interest and passion would lead you. But, you know, by taking one step at a time, you were able then to see what else was possible. And then, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. then you know, and, not, and, and then it all unfolded, as you said, how could you ever imagine really yeah. what, what that path, where would that path would take you, you know, around the globe, literally. Yeah. So anyway, so I think it's about time to, to stop. Anything okay. else that you'd like to stop with? Um, well, just to, uh, I think it was because I was getting ready for that interview with American Theater Magazine. I pulled out, which what happened, you know, on my retirement. Uh, I pulled out a journal, a, a notebook that I was keeping in my first year here in Bloomsburg. Um, um, and there was a, an entry, a journal entry in which I described the experience of walking down Main Street in this little town. And it was that time of day when when the sun is setting and, and all everything looks golden. Mm -hmm. Everything looks golden. And I said, even this, how beautiful this town is, this uh -huh. and I called it insignificant little town. I wrote down that word, insignificant. And now all these years later, and I look at that word and I go, Oh, you have no idea, young Laurie, <laughs> how significant this town will be mm -hmm. to you in your in your life in the years ahead. Mm -hmm. Interesting, but and at the same time, young Laurie yeah. could see the golden glow. Yeah, maybe not really understanding all mm -hmm. that would come from, but it, you would just yeah. the contrast. Even then, yeah. she described that. Well, Lori, thank you so much for taking the time to, you know, to um, share with us. You know, it's a very rich life. Um, and thank you. I look forward to seeing you. Yeah, I hope we can see each other. June 2024. Okay, <laughs> Carlton College, right? What? <laughs> it will be golden. It will be all <laughs> okay, okay, thank you so much. So this is Mercy Russell with the Remarkable Relationship Show. And um, I've just shared with you the second part of my interview with Lori McCants, um, an, an emeritus member of a theater ensemble in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, about her career over 40 years in the theater that is not over yet. Um, so anyway, um, uh, thank you for joining me today and I look forward to our show next week.